Church. My name is Esther, and we will now be reading today's passage from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Please follow along in your own Bible or the screen. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Uh, sorry. <laughs> this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And as he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the reading of God's word. All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church. Um, I thought hurricane season was over. But yeah, the rain's still coming. So uh, hope you guys are staying dry and hope the drive wasn't too bad. And, and I do want to acknowledge um, that for uh, many of you that coming up here and, and praying in public and reading scripture is not easy and it might be difficult, but we do want to acknowledge that worship is not just something that is done by one person or a team of people, but it is something that we all participate in together. So um, thank you that you are able to participate in worship together uh, as a community, as a body, as we worship God. And so um, just want to get right into it, uh, into it right now. We are starting or kind of continuing on our new sermon series called The History of Redemption. Uh, just through the, uh, just as we look through the Old Testament and we see just the narrative and the story of, of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the coming of Jesus Christ as our Redeemer and as our Savior. And I think oftentimes we look at the Bible as kind of like a dictionary encyclopedia, right? There's solutions, there's problems that we may have, and, and we kind of flip through the Bible to look for that particular topic or particular solution. And we fail to realize and see that the story of the Bible is, is really a narrative. It, it is, and for those people that are reading scripture from Genesis, 
Jesus, all the revelation, is telling one story of redemption, the story of, of Jesus who has come to fulfill the promise that God gives all the way in Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so for the Old Testament, especially here in the Pentateuch, or the first five chapters of the Old Testament, uh, the readers at that time were reading these stories, and they were really searching for the fulfillment of this promise, that the seed of the woman, who is going to be the, the son or the heir that will crush the head of the serpent. And I think a lot of times um, we have to be reminded of this story. We have to be reminded of the fact that uh, Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of this promise, the, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. So last week, we looked at the story of Noah and just really how, and, and the flood, and just saw that uh, Noah, even though he was righteous and blameless, um, that he, and God chose to restart mankind through him, that he was not yet the one, uh, you know, that was going to be the one to fulfill God's promise, right? And we saw the intention uh, and thoughts of mankind, even after the flood, that they were on evil continually. And so, you know, God, as through his promises, we see the line of, of Noah and his sons, and, and we see the lineage and the genealogy, and we're still waiting for the promised seed. Right, so we, uh, after Noah's flood, we see the story of the Tower of Babel, which we'll not get into today, but it's interesting story, by the way. Uh, God confuses the languages of the, uh, of the world and all the people, and then we see the genealogy of the, uh, of the sons of Noah, and we see Ham and, and Shem and, and Japheth, and we see that line going through, and then we see a, a more clearer or more fuller genealogy of the line of Shem. And, and so if you are reading the Bible with this uh, redemptive historical narrative in mind, this idea that we are waiting for the promised seed, the promised child. And the, then these genealogies make a lot more sense, right? Because when I was growing up, genealogies, well, sermons put me to sleep, and then genealogies really put me to sleep, you know? Like, if you have trouble going to sleep, you read a genealogy in the Bible, right? It's like, this, oh, the son of, oh, like, who, who, like, what's going on, right? But if you understand it from this redemptive historical perspective, you understand that these, this line or genealogy of, of the generations that are being repeated over and over and over again is because for the readers at this time, they are waiting for who is going to be the child of promise. Who is going to be the redeemer? Who is going to be the person who would crush the head of the serpent? And so we read the genealogy of Shem and we go all the way into the part where it talks about Shem uh, being the father of ter Terah. And then that Terah is the father of Haran. Uh, the father of uh, Nahor and the father of Abram. Okay, so we're like, okay, now it's kind of honing in on, on these three people. And, and we realize right away that it's not Nahor because he died, right? And, we, and then we see like, oh, it's probably not Abram and Sarai. Why? Because it says very specifically that Sarai was barren. Um, so if we're waiting for a child of promise, it's probably not going to come from a barren woman. So it's got to be Haran. And then starting in chapter 12, we see kind of a turn in the narrative as focal the main focal point of the characters is Abram and Sarai and we're wondering well what is actually happening here so starting from Genesis chapter 12 we get kind of we're introduced to these new characters Abram and Sarai in which God is going to fulfill the promise that he has made and, and he and he forms and ratifies a covenant with Abram and, when we, and for many of you guys, if you guys grew up in the church, you guys know the story of Abraham. Uh, you guys may have heard this story, um, you know, and him sacrificing or about to sacrifice his son Isaac. You know, a Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. And, and so we, we kind of read this story and with kind of like this uh, lens of like we already know what's going on. But when we really kind of step back and take a look at exactly what God is trying to communicate to us, 
the, the, the history of redemption, starting from Adam and Eve and their fall, and the story going all the way to Jesus and even up to our time, the fact that the fulfillment of this redemption comes from this one lineage, a, a plan that God has from the very beginning of time to bring salvation upon mankind, which had, you know, fallen in sin. And so we see really God's will being fulfilled, and we see his patience as he makes sure that the fulfillment of his promise comes according to his terms and his will, not according to how humans or how mankind might want to see something be fulfilled. So today we're going to look at the story of Abram, uh, his covenant with God, and we're going to really see uh, three points. First, the patience of God in fulfilling his pro uh, promise. I think oftentimes we, we seek and we want God to go and, and, and operate according to our timeline, according to our plans, but we really see the patience of God in making sure that his promises are fulfilled in the most perfect way possible. Then we're also going to see the responsibility of Abraham towards the covenant, or, or in, in, in real terms, like what is our responsibility in this relationship that we have with God? And lastly, we're going to see the promise being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So now, um, you know, I'm going to be kind of going from Genesis chapter 12 to 15 to 17 to 20, all over the place. But, you know, you guys don't have to turn there. Just listen, okay? If you really want to be um, awesome, then you, you will go there and look for yourself to make sure I'm not making things up, right? But Genesis chapter 12 starts, and it's called, um, and God calls Abram and his family out of his homeland to take him to a new nation. And he gives him a promise to make Abram into a great nation. Now, that promise to be made into a great nation is something that we don't really talk about today. Like, no one ever goes, hey, I think you're going to be a great nation. No, no, it's, for, for Abram, that promise is that God will multiply his family, that the descendants of the world will come through his lineage. And for a person who is married to a barren woman, to a barren wife, this promise will seem absolutely outlandish. Right, because in chapter 11, it's very clear. It says that Abram's wife, Sarai, had, it was barren and that they had no children of their own. So this promise to make Abram into a great nation is an outlandish promise made by a God who always keeps his word. Then in chapter 15, we have the ratification of this covenant. Uh, we have the, the, the actual, uh, you know, kind of the contractual obligation that is seen between Abram and God. And God, again, reiterating that he will make him into a great nation. That he promises that his descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the skies. It almost seems like an empty promise for a man who is married to a postmenopausal woman who is barren. But the faith of Abram was ignited as it says that he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then we get to chapter 16, and we see something completely backwards well, in, in our perspective, in our culture. Because what happens in chapter 16 is, uh, you know, Sarai goes to Abram, and, and she still has no kids, and she's like, hey, I got a plan, right? And again, remember, I told you the, the Bible has themes that repeat itself, right? So in Genesis chapter, in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, what happens? Eve goes to her husband, Adam, and says, hey, Adam, like, I got a plan. Let's eat this fruit. I ate and I didn't die. So we kind of have something similar. Sarai comes to Abram and says, I'm still without children. Go into my maidservant Hagar so that we will have an heir. Okay. Now, in our culture, okay, uh, 
like if, if we, you know, married, married couples, if, if you, wife, had no children and you went to your husband and said, hey, like, I got a coworker, like, she's pretty fertile. I booked a room at the Four Seasons in East Palo Alto, like, just, you know, go into her and then we will have our own children. We'll be like, what the heck? That's like a Netflix documentary coming. You know, it's like, it's like the beginning of like a new cult. You know, it's, 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 it's weird, right? Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about like, you know, the, the, the marvels of science and, and IVF and, and, and like, you know, legitimate surrogates. Or anything. I'm talking about like actually physically having intercourse with someone other than your spouse. It seems absolutely outlandish. But in this culture, it was not something taboo. In this culture at this time, it was something that was practiced very frequently. It was something that was accepted. It is not something like people, you know, like Abram's uh, neighbors were like, what the heck, Sarai's crazy. Like, how can she do that? Like, Hagar, oh my God. Like, no, this was a culturally acceptable practice. Because, you know, in those times, there were, were people that had, you know, problems with being barren and, and, and infertility. Right? Men who couldn't have kids or, or wives that couldn't have kids. And so the next possible or the next very illogical thing was that you would have a surrogate. Whether it's your maidservant, whether it's a, a, another wife or another husband, whatever it is. To because the, the idea of, of, of continuing your, uh, your, your seed is very important. So when Sarai comes to Abram and comes up with this idea that they would have an heir not with their own natural relationship, but through Hagar, her maidservant, this was not anything outlandish at all. But we see that God operates very differently than the way that we as humans operate. That for Abram and Sarai, the idea of fulfilling the promise of God through human design was not seen as something sinful, but was something seen as innovative and genius. Because in their mind, they could not get to the, they cannot fathom the possibility that Sarai at the age of, uh, you know, I think she was like 70, 75 years old, would be able to conceive a child after these many years of being barren. And for her, biologically, she's probably assuming like, I've already went through menopause. There's no way I can have a kid. And if we want to fulfill God's promise, here is the most practical and here is the most realistic way in which we can continue to make sure that your nation or that your descendants will be vast throughout all generations. And I think what we fail to see is in this culture, if this was so acceptable, what are things in our culture in our day that are seen as acceptable but it's contrary to the will of God. Because I think it's very easy for us to read a story like this and judge Abram and Sarai. How dare they do something so morally unethical? How dare they do something so outlandish? But in their day, they're like, this is very commonplace. But now we have to ask ourselves, why was it that in the standard of God that this idea of bringing in Hagar, an Egyptian, would be so difficult or so sinful in the eyes of God. Because again, we're coming back to this story of redemption, right? God has a plan, 
He says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So there's two lineages that is going on. There's two factions in, this, in the story of redemption that are at war with one another. There is the seed of the woman, and then there's the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent does not want to see the actualization of the seed of the woman come into the world. Why? Because that is the very way in which they will be destroyed. So Adam and Eve, they have Cain. They have Abel. What does Cain do? Who is in the line? We, we find out later that Cain is in the line of the seed of the serpent. He murders Abel. Right? Then they have Seth. Right? What happens again? Noah. Right? He's the seed of the woman. He's the, the lines of the sons of God. And then the sons of God see that the daughters of man were very attractive. They try to intermingle. What is the seed of the serpent trying to accomplish? He's trying to make sure that the seed of the woman does not actually come into existence in this world. And what happens here? God promises to Abram and Sarai that they will have a son. What does Sarai do? She gets her maidservant. Where's her maidservant from? The land of Egypt. Who are the descendants of the Egyptians? Who is the father of the Egyptians? If you look at Psalm chapter 78, it says this. I lost my place. Put it up here. Psalm 78. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Okay? Next passage, Psalm 10-something. 105. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. The people of Egypt are descendants of who? Ham. What did Ham do last week? We learned, right? He is definitely from the line of the seed of the serpent. So now what we see in this conjoining of Abram to Hagar to have an heir is that the seed of the serpent is trying to make sure that the descendant in which the seed of the woman would come would now be all mixed up and intermarried with the seed of the serpent. Providing not the child of promise, but a child of not a promise. So it's not so much that Abram and Sarah took upon themselves to do something sexually unethical. It was that in their impatience, that their human design to fulfill God's promise, what they were actually accomplishing was something very contrary to the promise of God. Because God was trying to provide a child through the heir of Abram and Sarai. Now, when we look at just kind of this, even this thought and idea in our, in our own culture, uh, it, it's, it's really this idea that when we think about what are th things that are acceptable in our culture, um, things that do not make us bat an eye, but may be actually very contrary to the will of God in our lives. Right? I mean, besides the culture wars that you might be thinking about, uh, besides uh, some of the, uh, you know, sexual ethics that we are, you know, very you know, at war with in our day and age currently, um, I think what's actually, in a, a, you know, in opposition to God is something a lot more insidious and a lot more subtle than that, right? Because we can talk about uh, the different sexual revolutions, things that are happening in the last 20 years, but yet within the church, within evangelical Christianity, there are things that we are so deeply just bounded in that are actually very contrary to the will of God in our lives. When we look at this idea, especially here in the Silicon Valley, 
right? And I talk about this all the time, but I talk about it because I really think that this is something that we really need to think about. This idea of what success is has really made us live lives in contradiction and opposition to the will of God. I think about our students, and if you have school-age students, um, it, it's, it's very interesting, right? Even just the way we, we categorize things. We talk about things, you know, what kind of work do you do? Are you blue-collar or white-collar, right? Uh, if you look at just even um, the, the majority of the demographics of our church, we are probably all more white-collar, right? Where are the blue-collars? Because there's, there's a certain form of partiality, especially if you are Asian-American and you grew up in, immigrant, you know, in an immigrant home. There was always this message, we are here working in a new country as blue-collar workers so that you don't have to. And the success of our immigration here into this land is fulfilled in your ability to become doctors and lawyers Engineers, anything other than that is not success. We are working in our laundromats and in our liquor stores and, you know, in our, in our small businesses so that you can be mid-level managers with degrees. And so we have this sort of idea that in order for you to be a good Christian, in order for you to have the qualifications to be leaders within the church, that there needs to be some sort of career and educational success. And it's amplified even more here in the Bay Area, is it not? And think about the amount of pressure that is put on school-age students today. If you have high school, middle school kids, or even elementary school kids, like, like when I was a kid, there was no such thing as STEM. What is, I, I learned about STEM when I came up here, honestly. But then it's like, Every, it's, it's STEM and then everything else, right? And STEM sounds so cool. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, you know? And it, it's just like, how good are you in STEM? You know, like, and this is a STEM-focused, and like, there's so much pressure to say that your value comes from your success and ability to succeed in this area. And even just like, okay, and, and I'm guilty of this as well, okay, because my kids are getting older, and I want my kids to have good extracurricular stuff, and it's like, oh, but it's, it's on Sundays. I'm like, oh, well, we can, we can make it work. You know, like, Christina, you, you drive them on Sundays, or we'll find another family, and then our kids can go together, and they can drive them, you know, and, and I'll bless it, you know? <laughs> like, it's okay, you know, like, hey, if it's for their future, you know, because I don't want my kids to give me money when I'm old, but I don't want them to take my money. You know what I mean? Like, that's a sign of success, right? But I also want them to do well. I want them to succeed in education, you know, and I want them to be, you know, good at sports. And, and we put all these things as the top priority of our lives, and we have to ask ourselves, is that actually in contradiction to the will of God in our lives? Because Satan is, he, he's not dumb. He's not tempting us with like, oh, here, join a cult, you know, sometimes. But, you know, like, not for the majority of us, like, oh, join this cult or, or you, know, you know, live your lives as like, you know, like devil worship. You know, like, no, he's saying like, what are subtle things that I can infiltrate into the lives of Christians, making them believe that what they're achieving and seeking after is actually in line with God when in reality is in opposition with God. 
And if we really audit our lives, if we're really honest with ourselves, many of the things that we pursue, many of the things that we have our children pursue are things that are subtly but forcefully driving us away from the will of God in, the, in our lives. It takes us away from worship. It takes us away from sanctification. It takes us away from becoming closer to God and allowing our children and the people around us to grow in love for God. That's exactly what happened with Abram and Sarai. The very thing that they were doing in their minds, they believed that they were achieving the will of God. But the very thing that they were doing was they were putting in jeopardy the very fulfillment of God's promise by having Abram go into Hagar in the line of Ham, the maidservant, and producing Ishmael. And the consequences of that action is still seen to this generation. Throughout the Old Testament, the very nations that were at war with Israel, the very threat to that nation was from the line of Ishmael. I think I'm, I'm going to run out of time, so moving on. We do have responsibility in this relationship as well. And, and, and God speaks to this even in, in, as he talks about ratifying this covenant. I think a lot of times in our churches, uh, in the Christian world, we talk a lot about God's unconditional love. We talk a lot about the grace of God, and that's all true, right? There's uh, uh, absolutely nothing that we bring to the table to have salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But oftentimes, we continue on that role uh, post-salvation. So we think, hey, we're all saved by grace. Now that I have this ticket to heaven, let me live my life the way I want. Let me go seek and achieve and, and, and go, uh, uh, you know, try to, you know, do everything that I want to do in this world. Right? And I'm not calling out just the young millennials and Gen Zers, okay? Uh, I, I came to the conclusion I'm Gen X, okay? That's, I'm not a boomer, but I'm Gen X, all right? We're, we're, we all have the same, you know, faults as well, right? But a lot of the times in our minds, what we have is once I finally get to travel and experience all these things that I see on Instagram, then I'll settle down and serve the Lord. Or say, or once... I achieve my degree and start my career, then I can settle down and really serve God. Or once I finally purchase a home, settle down, put in my roots, then I can focus on my relationship with God. Or once my kids are grown, then I can focus. You know, I mean, there's so many things that we distract ourselves with. So we minimize our responsibility in our relationship with God because we think that those are decent excuses or legitimate excuses to do so. So many of us, we focus so much of our time in our careers, in our work, trying to figure out how much, what's the best way that I can make the most money possible in the fastest way. So then, then I can finally start tithing. Or then I can finally start giving my time to God. Then I can finally start, you know, you know focusing on uh, my relationship with Jesus. Or we think about... What's the best way, like, I need to put my kids on the, on the best path towards success, and when they finally get into a good college or when they finally feel like they're succeeding in their studies, then I can finally then teach them about Jesus. You know, then I'll tell them, oh, now you really need to start going to church. Now you really need to start building community. Now you really need to start thinking about the foundation of your faith. We have so many excuses, and we minimize the responsibility that we have in this relationship with God. And God does not minimize it whatsoever, right? 
In this story in chapter 15, when God calls Abram, he gives him a responsibility to bring upon these certain animals. He says, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you, but you need to bring a three-year-old heifer. And I always wonder, like, how do they know what, how old these animals are? Do they have birthdays for them? Like, do they just know, you know, like, because he's got to be three years old, three-year-old goat, you know, uh, you know three-year-old uh, ram, and bring a pigeon, a young pigeon, and bring another bird. You know, like, he does, so there's some responsibility there. And then in chapter 17, when God institutes the sign of the covenant of circumcision, again, there is a responsibility upon Abraham now to fulfill his end of the covenant. He needs to circumcise every male in his family going forward. And for him, like, he's a grown adult and he's got to get circumcised. That's like my worst nightmare. I had friends who got circumcised when they were grown. Uh, anyways. <laughs> you know, like, as a baby, it's, it's okay. You don't know what's going on. You know, like, you don't remember. But, you know, like, when you're grown, it, you, you remember. And that's what they had to do. And it, the... Their inability to fulfill their end of the covenant in circumcision meant that they would be put to death or that they would be cast out from the covenant community. And so as believers, we have a responsibility not just to receive the free grace of salvation through Jesus Christ, but to see him as Lord. The fact that he gives commands the fact that he gives us a standard in which we ought to worship him and live and follow after him is something that we cannot ignore. And for Abraham, now we see after Genesis chapter 17 where the sign of the covenant is given to him, we see a transformation occur. He is not staying the same. He is not still Abram living a life of deception and just figuring out ways to, you know, fulfill God's promise or human design, we see a change and transformation of him becoming more and more faithful in the words that God has for him. So not only does he circumcise his entire family, then we see him, you know, really just praying for the land of Sodom. He Then we see him, like, really, you know, really seeking out to save his nephew Lot. Like, here's a man who was all about self-preservation. He told his wife, to tell the king of Egypt that she was his sister so that he won't die, you know? Like, you know, if, if, you're, if you're ever walking and then, like, you know, those pe bush people, they dress like bushes and they scare you, like, husband and wife, if, if, if they scare you and then the husband goes like this and puts the wife in front, that's basically what Abraham was doing, right? He's like, we're going to Egypt, you're beautiful, they're going to want to kill me, so tell them you're the wife, or you're my sister, okay? Um, but we, he, we no longer see that, right? We see a change. But then in Genesis chapter 20, what happens? He goes into the land of King Abimelech, and we see Abraham tell Sarah, Sarah, tell him that you are my sister because you are beautiful. And if you tell them that you are my wife, they might kill me so they can take you as his wife. It's interesting because even in Abraham, as he's growing in faith, we see old sins repeat itself. Even in Abraham, as he's growing in, in, in sanctification and becoming more and more faithful in God, we see old sins repeat itself. And this is the reason why this sin is so, uh, is so evil. Not because he was deceiving, not because he was just out for self-preservation, you have to understand that even in Genesis chapter 20, up to this point, Abraham and Sarah still did not have a child. 
So by telling the king of, uh, you know, King Abimelech that Sarah is his sister, not his wife, what happens is Abimelech takes Sarah to be his, one of his wives. And what do you do when you take somebody to be your wife? You consummate that marriage. And when you consummate that marriage, what happens? You may have a child with the person you are consummating the marriage with. The very thing that the seed of the serpent does not want is for the seed of the woman, the promised child, to come into existence. How do you destroy that lineage? You do prima nocta with Sarah, Sarah, right? So Abraham's sin is not so much in self-preservation, but again, he is failing to fulfill the promise of God to protect Sarah from any other men to enter into her. God protects them from that. And then in chapter 22, we see the full transformation of Abraham as now after he finally has his son Isaac, God calls him to sacrifice him up in the mountain. Abraham does not try to fulfill God's promise through his own human design, but he believes in full faith that even if he sacrifices his son Isaac, that God will somehow bring him back from the dead. John chapter 8 when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, before Abraham was, I am, he tells the Pharisees, Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced. And I believe the reason why Abraham was able to fulfill or, or to follow the command of God to go and sacrifice Isaac is because he saw what was going to happen in the future. That just as God would bring his very own son, Jesus Christ, back to life after death, that if he went and fulfilled and went through with the sacrifice of his own son Isaac, that God would somehow bring his son Isaac back to life. Because he knew now that the God who fulfills all promises never goes back on his word. And he promised Abraham that you will be a great nation. That through you many nations will be blessed. So there's this responsibility that we have. And I think for many of us, we ignore that responsibility. We come, we hear the word of God, we may profess our faith, we may proclaim that we are saved through the blood of Jesus, and yet we go on to our daily lives and live according to however we like. And I think there's an issue with that. Because Jesus is your savior, but he's not your Lord. And Jesus is very clear, very clear what he does and what he says to people who cry out to him in the end, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And he says, be gone, I never knew you. Because we don't know Jesus if he's just our savior. We know Jesus in our relationship as he is our Lord. Last and final point, the fulfillment of God's promise. Um, now let's take a look at God's, this actual fulfillment or this actual ritual that we see in Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to be very quick, all right. 1.75 speed right here. In the ancient Near East, there is a ritual that takes place to ratify covenants or to ratify treaties. This usually occurred between two kings, a conquering king and a conquered king. And the conquering king would make the, uh, the stipulation of what this treaty would be about. And he'll say, you owe me a tenth of your, you know, your, your fruits, your whatever. And then the conquered king will say, and we will serve you unconditionally as long as you continue to be the conquering king. And they would get animals, they would split them in half, they would put them in a row, and the two kings would walk through it, 
as a sign to say, if either one of us breaks this covenant, may we be like these split animals. Basically, it's a covenant to death, right? You do not fulfill your covenant, you die. And this is what was happening in Genesis chapter 15. God said, bring me a heifer, bring me a ram, bring me a goat, bring me these birds, split them in half. Birds of prey come. Abraham is like chasing them away because he doesn't want them to eat these birds. And then it says that as, a sun, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. For some reason, maybe it was because he was like tired of chasing the birds away, but he falls into a deep sleep. And then it says, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Right? So all of a sudden, Abram is knocked out, but then he's filled with deep terror and, and, and dreadful darkness. Like, uh, have you guys ever had scissor lock where you're like sleeping but you're awake and then you can't move? Uh, you know, sleep paralysis, right? That's what they call it. Your mind is awake but your body is asleep. I don't know if it's exactly like that, but, it, it, but you know, at those moments I get scared, Right? Um, it might be something like that. But Abram is knocked out, but he's filled with terror. He's filled with dreadful darkness. And it's because what he is about to witness, or not witness because he's sleeping, is the very presence of God in his midst. See, God graciously puts Abram to a deep sleep because he understands that no human would be able to see his presence and live. So Abram is knocked out, and he's, he's filled with this dreadful terror. And this word terror, is, it reflects a human emotion often seen in the Old Testament when they're in the presence of God. Okay? This word is not the same word as pahad, which is like the intimidating or a, like an unnerving terror. This word uh, is ima, which reflects the, the reverence that you have when you're in the presence of God. And that's what Abram is experiencing and then it says that as the sun had gone down, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these two pieces. So there's two characters that pass through the pieces to ratify the covenant. The first is a smoking pot. Now, um, I know some of what you guys are saying, it's not that kind of smoking pot, okay? Different smoking pot, okay? Um, for the, you know, we don't really know, but for metalsmiths, blacksmiths, they have like a pot, and then that's where you refine metal. You pour, uh, you know, you put metal and you, and you, you know, burn it, and then the metal becomes liquid. What comes on top is, is the, the uh, impurities or the dross. A good metalsmith or a good blacksmith, when that happens, they would skim all the dross off the top to the point where now the liquid metal is a, is a reflection. Like, it, it, it's so pure that it can reflect anything like a mirror. So this idea of a smoking pot going through is this idea that in it is the reflection of God's image. That there can be no impurities within this pot. That all the impurities and all the dross are wiped away. That the only one capable of keeping all the commands and all the, the, the standards of this covenant is only a person that can reflect God's image perfectly. And then the next thing that goes through this these animals, is the torch. And God is often described as a flaming fire. God is descri Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. So these two characters go through in between the cut animals. You know who doesn't walk through the cut animals? Abram. Because he's sleeping. Because God understands that the only way that this covenant can be fulfilled and ratified is not through mankind, but it is only if he is able to fulfill this covenant. 
So the flaming pot, which is the, the pure reflection of his image, no impurity within it, is really the sign of Jesus Christ's son. The one who has no sin, the one who is spotless, the one who is without impurity, the one who will perfectly reflect his image upon this earth, living a life without sin. And the flaming torch is, is the sign of his presence that goes through between these two animals. And he understands that the only way that this covenant will fully be fulfilled is by himself. But there still needs to be payment because Abram is part of that covenant. There still needs to be payment for the ones who do not fulfill their end of the bargain. And what happens? Abraham did not walk through. It is Christ who pays that penalty for us. He is the one that is split in two. He is the one that has his blood shed to fulfill the holy standard that God has. So when we see the story of redemption, we see that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. Not Abraham, not Isaac. It is Jesus who, who came, lived a life without sin, who died the death that we deserve, and who was brought back to life because he is the seed that crushes the head of the serpent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again, um, just reminding us of the grace in which our salvation is secured through you. God, we, we pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are reminded of this good news, that we are a people who do not take lightly the fact that we are called to, to now be disciples, to follow after you, to live a life under your lordship. And God, that we would be a people who would be reflective and, and really think about what are the things in our lives that might be culturally accepted but completely opposed to you. That we would not think of ourselves too highly, that we would not think of ourselves as people who are okay because the world tells us that we are good people, but that we are people who continually seek to live a life of confession and repentance so that we can be transformed into your image. So God, make this message real in our lives and may you be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.